So at peak construction, we will have around 34,000 people needed to design and build the railway. And then around 2,000 apprentices, they are likely to start their careers on high speed two and go on to do some amazing things in our industry. You're given a job to do, create a space underground, whatever it be for, if it's a tunnel or if it's a chamber, if it's for sewerage, whatever it is, you're building a space out of nothing and you're leaving it for 50, 100 years for people to use. Even when you've been told that this is the largest infrastructure project in Europe, the scale still gets you. We're visiting one of the London tunnels, part of HS2. My name is John Ambrose, Corporate Narrative Manager here at Skaska, and you're listening to Shaping Sustainable Places, our podcast designed to recognise, encourage and inspire stakeholders in the industry and beyond to accelerate the transition to a more sustainable, resilient, zero-carbon built environment. I've been working on this podcast behind the scenes for a few months now. Usually one of our incredible hosts will lead the interviews. However, High Speed 2, the UK's new high-speed railway, which is often known as HS2, is such an exciting project that I felt it was time for me to leave the office and see it firsthand. I'm taking you with me. But before heading underground to see how we take on one of the largest infrastructure projects in Europe, we need to understand why. To help us get that bird's eye view, I sat down with Tim Smart, Managing Director for Phase 2 of HS2. Which is the part that goes north of Birmingham onto Manchester. And then it, also there's work we're doing on the east to see if we can get a route through to Leeds. And obviously High Speed 2 is the... Tim's the definition of a subject matter expert. He's been part of the HS2 project for over a decade. Looking over his career, he could not help but smile. We've been at this for quite some time. I've been on the project for nearly... 11 years myself in various guises. I was previously chief engineer. And um, the first part of the construction for phase one, which is the London to Birmingham bit, and that's well underway. And that's where a lot of the action is at the moment. Previous to me joining HS2, I was engineering director and for many years on HS1, which was the first high-speed railway in the UK, which goes from the Channel Tunnel through to St Pancras International. It doesn't take long to understand that Tim is proud to be part of such a momentous endeavours, and rightly so. This is a man who understands high-speed railways. We had your colleague Emma Head on earlier on, and she was mentioning that this is the largest infrastructure project in Europe. You've got a very special take on that. Can I ask you your take on the project? Yes, certainly. I mean, there's a view that we shouldn't be calling this high-speed two because it's not necessarily about high-speed, it's about connectivity. It's much more than that in terms of its economic influences. So my take is this really fulfills the government ambition to level up, if you like. We need to bring Britain's largest economy regions in the north to move from a focus of London and the southeast, which is where it's been. So to harness the sort of powerhouse of the northern cities of Manchester and in the Midlands, of course, at Birmingham. And the West Coast Main Line, which goes from Euston in London through to Birmingham and beyond, is UK's most important strategic rail corridor, but it was built in Victorian times. So it's a bit shaky. It's not that reliable. There are quite frequently issues with reliability of the service, cancellations and delays. And the government's looked fairly exhaustively at how we could fix the issues over the last decade. And there was some major upgrades to the West Coast Main Line done in the sort of 2009 time by Network Rail, but it didn't really get north. And there are a lot of bottlenecks. So in order to upgrade the West Coast Main Line, you know, you'd have a lot of disruption to what is Europe's potentially busiest regional railway. So the current corridor can't really be improved that much. The only way to deliver the goal of, of getting the regions closer together is to increase the capacity on a new network, on a new backbone railway, which is high speed two. 
Even when you've been told that this is the largest infrastructure project in Europe, the scale still gets you. We're visiting one of the London tunnels, part of HS2. This particular section will deliver 26 kilometres, more than 16 miles, of the train line from Euston Station in central London to West Ryslip on the outskirts of the city. Phase 1 of HS2 will extend from London to the West Midlands. A bunch of the boys whipping it up in the Malamute Saloon. The kid that handles the music box was hitting a ragtime tune. When out of the night there was 50 below and into the din and the glare, stumbled a miner fresh from the creeks, dug dirty and loaded for bear. That's David Ode. Sometimes known as Odiwan Kenobi, but Odiwan for short, yeah. Dave is one of the two people I got to meet on site while in London. One thing you should know about David Ode is that when asked to do a mic check, he might launch into verse. As TBM superintendent, Dave oversees the entire workforce for two tunnel boring machines. And tunneling is quite literally in his family. Tunneling all my life. My dad was a tunneler, my brother was, my nephews, my son's here on this project. He works on the TBM. Just for the people who don't know and who don't work here, a TBM is a tunnel boring machine. Can you describe what a tunnel boring machine is for people who've never seen one? It's a tube, basically, that cuts its way through the ground. And as it's cutting its way through the ground, it's building support behind itself so that it's a safe environment as you go. Yeah, we've just been down in the tunnel, which is an amazing experience. And you can see how, as you say, they've got the cutting head that's cutting through the earth, and then it's sliding, it's pushing these segments up into place behind it as it goes. Yes. And pushing itself forward, yeah. like a worm. Yes. 180 metre long. An expensive worm. We walk 600 metres through the tunnel just to get to the TBM, the tunnel boring machine, which in itself is 140 metres long and just under 10 metres in diameter. It weighs in at more than 2,000 tonnes. It crawls forward, digging its way through the earth at around 15 metres a day. As it moves forward, it pushes concrete segments into place. Each segment weighs nearly seven tonnes. These then support the surrounding earth and form the tunnel itself. The machine we're visiting is called Sushila, after a local science and technology teacher, and was launched in October last year. Each of the 12 TBMs assigned to HS2 is named after a woman scientist. Several people describe the TBM as like a ship traveling underground. It has break rooms, first aid stations, even lifeboats, or rather escape pods, which provide a refuge in case of an emergency. The noise is constant, droning and whirring and banging. The conveyor belt taking ton after ton of semi-liquid earth out of the tunnel to what is known as the muck bin, a huge receptacle above ground. Hundreds of people are working on the site and the TBM teams work in shifts around the clock, day in, day out. It's hard work in a challenging environment. Eight kilometres heading back towards London, we come out at a shaft called Green Park, and there's two TBMs heading, will be later this year, heading back towards us, they're five kilometres, and then there's more TBMs coming out of Euston towards Green Park, so I think it's about 15 kilometres in total. This has got to be one of the most demanding work environments around, I mean, you're tens of metres below the earth, and you're also tunnelling underneath London. I mean, London's one of the busiest cities in the world. There's centuries of pipes and tunnels and all that sort of... Can you talk us through some of the challenges that you're facing on a project like this? It's exactly what you say. It's the infrastructure above. There's railways, there's electricity, there's gas mains, there's water mains, there's historic buildings. 
well, then we're monitored ahead, way ahead. And there's people going out there monitoring the infrastructures. Before we can mine, before we can cut and push forward, we're given a permit to dig, possibly for 100 metres, 200 metres, whatever they say. You're clear, that's where you're heading. We get that and off we go. So everything is monitored daily, hourly. If there is any shrinkage in the ground above, we get a red flag, we call it. Yeah. So up to 50 mil, we get a red flag. But we've had nothing at the minute, two mil. When we were down in the tunnel just now, I saw someone with a laser. I'm guessing they're measuring. They're checking different things, yeah. yeah they're checking movements. You mentioned, I mean, we, we've got all these historical buildings above. Is there a problem with the vibration of the machine? No. It's monitored, very highly monitored. We've gone underneath these even shallower than we are now. We're about 12 metres deep now. The deepest will go is about 25. But when we set off, we were quite shallow. And the people didn't even know we were there in the houses and that. We have zones ahead of us that we don't stop. So we hit under the railway. We have to keep going. So we do not stop for anything. We just keep going till we're through that zone. We call it a zone of influence. So we've got one coming up shortly, which will be the railway further on. So it's about 40 metres, that zone of influence. So once we approach that, we have to make sure everything's right, everything's tickety-boo, and we drive on and we don't stop until we're through that zone of influence so that we don't affect any surface infrastructure. I think you were saying it's pushing through about 15 metres a day? It, yeah, varies, yeah. It's 1.9 segment, so a cut is about 1.9. And I think they did nine last night over 24 hours. So nine, you know, 15, 18 metres. It's an enormous undertaking. We were saying that there's something happening all the time. How many people have you got on, your, on the site here? Approximately 300, give or take, you know. So it's good. It was good to put the team together a year ago. I started myself and Stefan, the tunnel manager, to look for the people we wanted. You have to build a good team that work together. And not just work with the cells, but work with the other teams as well. And we're really starting to click now. Because you, you're going to be doing this for a while. About 18 months. 18 months. Yeah, roughly. It's good. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah, you can't beat it. You're given a job to do, create a space underground, whatever it be for, if it's a tunnel or if it's a chamber, if it's for sewerage, whatever it is, you're building a space out of nothing and you're leaving it for... 50, 100 years for people to use, whatever it is. I've done it all my life and I'll keep going. That sense of impact that Dave mentions, building a space that people will use for generations, is shared by Tim Smart. I started out life pretty much in tunnelling and I'm still perhaps a tunneler at heart. While Dave and his teams focus on the day-to-day -day digging of these tunnels, Tim is looking at the big picture. He illustrates this by lifting the lessons learned from HS1. There's two key things, I think, which we've got to really have in our front of our minds. One is a laser focus on the railway end state, because we are building a railway. And it's sometimes easy to get carried away with, oh, actually, it's some really big civil engineering project. But it is a railway. So certainly on high speed one, channel tunnel railing, because it was, we had a real focus on backwards planning, on what you've got to do to commission a railway. And therefore, that whole piece of systems integration was key into our thinking. And then the second point I would make is the collaborative working. That really served us well on High Speed One. We are applying that, as you know, John, on phase one. And it's that sort of collaborative working, starting with the client and embracing the entire supply chain that's particularly important and gets you, I think, where you need to be. 
it is amazing that so many different parties are working together on a project of this scale. Holding on with the HS1, there have obviously been a lot of lasting legacy benefits from that, including a lot of urban regeneration. If we're talking about the end state, can you talk about what the end state was there with HS1 and what that meant for the UK? Yes, certainly. So I don't know whether you would, but if you could envisage what was the back of St Pancras International before High Speed One, it was a pretty derelict area. If you go there now, it's an amazing development of commercial residential development. Some big businesses have moved into that area. Google, PMB Paribas are all in that sort of locale of St Pancras International because, you know, clearly there's a good connection through to France because it's an international station. And that's really transformed that area. And High Speed One was designed to bring growth and transformation to the North Corridor of Kent. And that's happening. And we can start to see that now around Ebbsfleet with Ebbsfleet Garden City. And that's beginning to sort of happen because we've opened up that corridor. And not forgetting Stratford, the Olympic Park legacy, because clearly when London won the Olympics in 2012, a big part of our offer was how we were going to serve the Olympic Park. And High Speed One, fast trains to Stratford from Stratford to Pancras International was part of that. So there's a whole piece around the regeneration that has caused. And in fact, on High Speed Two now in Birmingham, that effect is already starting to be felt. Andy Street, who's the Metro Mayor for Birmingham, is absolutely clear that there are businesses that are moving into Birmingham and Birmingham is benefiting from that if it wasn't for High Speed 2 would not be happening now. So even though we haven't even opened the railway yet in terms of High Speed 2 to Birmingham, that effect of being felt. When we were planning this, you were saying that you were involved and I think you were chief engineer for phase one and that in the design stage, the initial plan was for the line to run above ground through London. Can you tell me why that design changed to what is being delivered today and why that's bringing benefits to the people of London? Yeah, certainly. The early work that was done, there was a view that you could fit the IGS2 corridor out of Euston down an existing rail corridor as you go out sort of north of Euston. But the disruption that was going to cause, I think there was in the order of 19 very busy road and rail bridges that would have to be demolished and rebuilt to get the the sufficient gauge width through for the railway. There was a major junction in the UK called Hangar Lane, which is a big road gyratory, carries lots of utilities. Some of those utilities were oil field cables, which means you can't easily divert them. You've got to go right back to the nearest substation, which could be kilometres away. So when you actually looked at the disruption you would cause on the surface to get a railway corridor along what is a pretty well-developed route, it made the tunnelling option far more economical. Can we talk a little bit more now about the economic benefits? You were talking about the, these businesses that are moving into Birmingham, and we're seeing these sorts of things along the route, but even on a more, dare I say, human scale in regards to the fact that there's an awful lot of jobs. There's a lot of people getting jobs and learning trades. Can we talk a little bit about those sorts of benefits that we're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. And that is really, you know, one of the key things about HS2. So our construction forecast is to support around about 34,000 jobs at peak. Our workforce is currently around 30,000, but there are thousands more people working factories, offices and workplaces right across the UK, which sort of remain hidden. And they're helping to bring HS2 to life. We've got steel mills in Sheffield. We have specialist door manufacturers in Bolton. These are just a couple of examples. And HS2 is supporting and creating thousands of jobs from many different sectors. And that's a trend I think will continue for the next decade and beyond as we add the next sections to Crew Manchester and beyond. And we're committing to creating meaningful careers and we achieve this by investing in long-term development in our workforce. Upskilling is vital and that was actually one of the aims at High Speed 
one actually, but we're certainly doing that in spades at high speed too, if I can use that term. And our commitment to creating 2,000 apprentices and our current successes that we've got over 1,100, I think, current apprentices starting so early into our construction programme. And that sort of shows the great strides that we're making. HS2 brings the promise of new opportunities and greater access throughout the UK. And even now, a lasting legacy within the construction industry is being built. This is something of particular interest for Louise Daly, the head of legacy and social sustainability for the Skanska Costain Strabag joint venture. What I do is I oversee the equality, diversity, and inclusion work on the project, along with the skills, employment, and education. My role as head of social sustainability is to ensure that we're leaving positive benefits, not just for the communities here today, but for generations to come. And we're looking at that through the lens of economic growth, local jobs, education, and really ensuring that our communities benefit from the investment into High Speed 2, way beyond how they travel, but how they live and how the community comes together. You were talking about the benefits being generated by HS2, both in the short term and in the longer term. Can we start with what are the benefits that are already happening now, particularly in the social aspects, already now in the, during the construction phase? Yeah, so it's probably key to say that High Speed 2 is probably the most important economic regeneration project that we've had in the UK for decades. And in my mind, should be considered a social and economic project as well as a transport project. And it will support legacy and growth across the UK for years to come. So at peak construction, we will have around 34,000 people needed to design and build the railway. And then around 2,000 apprentices, they are likely to start their careers on high speed two and go on to do some amazing things in our industry. So it's the role of teams like mine across the route to ensure that we are maximising these opportunities for jobs and growth within our communities. For us on the project, local employment is key to leaving that legacy of social mobility. And our aim is really to support not just local, but young, and especially those that are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds in our communities. There's been a very clear strategy behind these sorts of benefits that we're doing. Can we talk a, a bit about the strategic approach that you've had here? Absolutely. So we put together a strategy probably about two years ago now, really focusing on what we feel the issues were in the local area. So we have a strategy that has five strategic pillars, and they are post-pandemic recovery, social mobility, local economic growth, community cohesion, and creating a better environment. And these pillars really shape how we work with the community. They're being created to reflect the environment. What are we going through? What have we gone through in the last few years? And also the priorities of the councils. So understanding what their priorities are with the communities is essential for us because that's what we want to be doing in the area. And we also collaborate a lot closer with local partners on this programme. These are the people that understand the communities, they understand what matters to them. And what we ultimately want to do is to create a legacy that the community want and not what we think they want, which sometimes I think... We, we feel we know the community and actually, you know, bringing the community and those partners in, that way we start to create a legacy that, that everyone wants. I find the whole thing fascinating, but particularly this sort of interaction and collaboration with the local communities. 
one thing that's often tricky in these areas is quantifying. There's the old cliche that what gets measured gets done, but you've actually been able to quantify and measure some of these benefits. Can you talk about how we're doing that and what you're seeing? Absolutely. So on the project, we collect a lot of data. We present that to High Speed 2, but we started to look at that data slightly differently. And we on the project have been using a UK method of calculating the monetary value of our approach. So that's across the board, social, economic and environmental. So this tool is called TOMS, and that stands for Themes, Outcomes and Measures. But what it essentially does is allow us to quantify the value of our social benefits by putting a financial proxy to each of the activities that we deliver. So we are currently measuring ourselves around 60 measures, and that's from employment, procurement, community investment, to environment, and a few other measures to really start to capitalise our approach and our strategy. So, so far, our approach has been verified as delivering around £338 million for year one. So that equates to around 33% of our contract spends being put back into the community. It is a great figure. However, I like to think that success is actually the impact we're having on people's lives. And it's actually the stories that me and my team hear every day. They're the successes for me. A figure is great, but actually those human stories that sit behind that figure is even better. I had to do a quick conversion there, and we're coming in at over 400 million US dollars as well. Yeah, it's breathtaking. It really shows how this work with the community is having an impact. HS2, the project's due to continue up until 2035, but you've been talking about legacy, and with legacy, we're talking about benefits that are going to be continuing for decades after that. Can you talk us through the concept of legacy in the context of HS2? So the unique thing about High Speed 2 is we are working with the same communities for a long period of time. We're here for years. So we are getting to understand our communities probably better than we've ever had to do in the past. So we are able to reach young school children, for example. They could be five in primary school, but we are going to be with them throughout their educational journey. We're able to train and reskill local people for careers, not just a job, sustainable career paths with us and then moving on when we're out of the area. We're able to support small, medium-sized businesses to grow. They're employing local people now. Their business is growing, so they will win future work on projects. But we're also building a community with stronger skills, a passion for their environment and a way to support social mobility. So essentially, we're growing a more resilient community. I think the thing is, is many of our local people will not directly benefit from High Speed 2 being operational. They will not be the ones that are going up and down to different parts of the country every day. So it is crucial that we also leave them with a legacy of economic growth and employment and investment that's been put into to them as we've been in that area. Earlier on, we heard from Dave about how tunnelling ran in his family. That's a legacy his father handed out to him that he is now handing on to his son. The ripple effect of educating and empowering a new and diverse generation within the construction industry is astounding. Both Tim and Louise have mentioned the 2,000 apprenticeships being created by HS2. 
When I was visiting in London, I had the opportunity to speak to one of these apprentices. So my name is Fiona O'Riordan. I'm a trainee civil engineer working on the HS2 in Area West. You're serving an apprenticeship, or you're still doing an apprenticeship now? Yeah, yeah. my third year. Okay. How long is the whole apprenticeship? So it's a five-year course at university, and then the final year also focuses on getting our chartership through the ICE. ICE. Institute of Civil Engineers. Mm -hmm. So it's both on the job and formal training at union. Yeah, so I do four days on site at work and then one day a week at university. And when you finish, your qualification will be civil engineer or...? Yes, a BSc in civil engineering. What led you to looking for this sort of apprenticeship and why did you choose to do it with Skanska? So I studied BTEC Level 2 at my secondary school and then went into level three at college. And then from doing the BTEC, I really wanted to get into construction or engineering. And then I got offered to do an insight day with Skanska in their head office, which was Maple Cross. And then I really enjoyed it there. And then I went into looking for job roles with Skanska in the engineering industry. And I was lucky enough to get this one instead yeah. of engineering. We're lucky enough to get you. Somewhat reserved, Fiona might not start an interview by reciting a poem, but she is as sharp as a tack, with an exciting career in front of her. One thing that's absolutely amazing is that you were named Apprentice of the Year in the yes. Women in Construction Awards. Congratulations! That's Thank a, you. That's fantastic. What would be the best advice you could give to someone who's thinking about a career in construction? I'd say definitely do it. It might seem quite male-dominated if you are a girl, but... It gets easier and there is lots of young people and there is a good support network of people as well as you're learning and you're earning at the same time. Hopefully we can do our little bits to encourage more people to join, especially women. You know, we are creating jobs that people will have careers for life and yeah, we're also creating jobs in the communities in the north. So, for example, when I graduated from my university, which is probably beyond living memory, I would have liked to have stayed in that particular region and worked, but I couldn't because there were not the sort of jobs that were on offer. I had to return to the south of London. And I think we are creating jobs in some of these communities where people have now got something within if they want to be staying in some of the northern cities where there weren't perhaps some of the industries that were traditionally there that were big employers. What do you personally see as the most important aspects? It's impossible to give a couple, but I mean, the scope of this is so big. What has touched you most in regards to the effects of this and the scale of this and the people you're working with on this? So I think it's, it is about connecting throughout the UK. And it is about the opportunities that we're giving to people to you know upskill the workforce. And you heard me talk about the number of people that have now got jobs that maybe wouldn't have done. And you know, it is about moving people efficiently. When you get to a station, you like to think that your train is going to leave somewhere about when it's supposed to, and it's going to get to the end of your journey somewhere about where it's supposed to and not have lots of delays. And that's what a new railway brings. So you've got efficient way of traveling. You're getting to people to work. You're moving people around socially to go and see people that, you know, family and friends that might not be so close and that you get there sustainably and reliably and basically 
quicker as well. So there's a time saving. But I think at the end of the day, for me, it is about the legacy that we're going to achieve through the people and the jobs we will create. And we talked about, you know, the generation, the urban generation that we will create. It's starting to happen in Birmingham already. It'll happen as we move north. And that, of course, itself brings the knock on effects of not just the railway, but what, what happens ar around the railway, because, you know, they are, they tend to be a hub of which other things accumulate and aggregate around, such as, you know, commercial development, residential development, as I talked about around St Pancras International. Even though the railway won't be finished for years yet, it's already bringing benefits to communities along its route, including jobs, training opportunities and economic stimulus. It's also leading the way in innovative construction solutions for a reduced climate impact. With the opportunity to see the breadth of this project and to speak from people from managing director to an apprentice, I was able to see the scope of HS2 and the benefits that it's bringing. From end to end, the HS2 project aims to improve the quality of life for every community it touches and beyond. Shaping sustainable places indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Skenska. We are a world-leading project development and construction group using knowledge and foresight to shape the way we live. Go to skenska.com to learn more. That's S-K-A-N-S-K-A dot -S -S com.